You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Cross and Crown, uh, we believe that God's word, uh, the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today we have two passages to read, uh, the first two verses of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and the final two verses as well of chapter 5. So starting with chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace be multiplied to you. And the second reading is chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verses 12 to 14. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have a question for all of you. It's a simple question, but a profound one at the same time. Who are you? Who are you? It's it's a simple question, isn't it? And yet the answer seems just a little bit more complicated. Our families tell us you are who you know. You're you're a mother or father, a wife or a husband, a son or a daughter. Our workplaces, or maybe your good mates, tell you you are what you do, a corporate lawyer, an investment banker, a medical doctor. And our society increasingly tells us you are what you do feel. You hear it, don't you? Look inside. Be yourself. Or that irritating phrase, you do you, whatever that means. Now, on the one hand, it sounds great, doesn't it, right? Because I get to be whoever I want to be. But here's a great problem. I don't actually know who I want to be. And who I want to be actually changes all the time. It's such a simple question, who are you? But no one really seems to have an answer. I suspect that for Christians, there's an additional layer of complexity, right? Because it constantly feels like we're living between two worlds, like we're living two lives, maybe even like we're two different people. Some years ago, before I was a pastor, I used to work in the city and I'd take the train down to 333 Collins Street. I remember I'd walk in, beautiful building, beautiful dome, I'd go to the lobby, I'd try to work the lift, I'd press the button, I'd step into the lift, and I'd go up to level 21. 
But, but it didn't feel like the lift was taking me to a different floor so much as it was taking me to a different world. You see, at work, everything just felt different. The people were different. The language was different. The values were different. Gosh, even the humor was different. And if I'm honest, I was different. You see, on Sunday, I'd gather with God's people, sit under his word and sing his praises. I'd value holiness. I'd speak of godliness. Gosh, I'd even lead a small group. But no, here in this corporate castle, I would laugh at inappropriate jokes. Might drink too much alcohol. Might share in office gossip. And in those moments, when I was doing those things, I could feel in myself some sort of out-of-body experience and look at myself and I think, who are you? Who are you? Have you ever felt like that before? Like a stranger in the world, always at risk of losing yourself. Always at risk of forgetting who you are. You know, this letter 1 Peter was written to a people just like us, a people at constant risk of losing themselves, at constant risk of forgetting themselves. So the Apostle Peter writes this letter with one great purpose. He wants to remind us of who we are. He wants us, as Matt just read before, to stand firm in the grace of God, to stand firm in the grace of God. You see that in chapter 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you. Isn't that beautiful? And to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You see, Peter wants us to stand firm against persecution and to stand firm against the pressure. And I want you to see how he does it. He, he does it by almost chaining us to our true identity. So whatever the persecution or whatever the pressure, we won't ever forget who we are. See, that's what Peter's all about. Who are you? Who are you? And today, as we begin this series, I want to just introduce you to his answer. And it's actually found in the first two verses of this letter. In fact, it's found in just two words. Just two words. Firstly, who are you? We are exiles. We are exiles. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as, there it is, exiles. Dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You see, Peter's writing to Gentile Christians scattered right across the Roman Empire. Those five regions in verse 1, it covers one of the largest landmasses in the entire New Testament. It's as if Peter's writing to all Gentile Christians scattered across the entire known world. And look at how Peter describes them. They're living as exiles. Why, why would he use that word? Why the word exile? Because in one sense, these Gentile Christians, they're not exiled at all. They're living exactly where they'd always lived. It's not as if they were Jewish Christians who'd been exiled and scattered out of Jerusalem right across the Roman Empire. No, these Gentile Christians were already living in these five regions. So if they're already at home, why would Peter call them exiles? 
Well, if you were a Gentile Christian reading this letter, you would know exactly why. Because as soon as you see that word, hear that word exile, you're going to be thinking of the Old Testament. You're going to be thinking of Judah's exile in Babylon. I wonder if you can remember what happened, crash course in Old Testament history, 922 BC. The kingdoms divided, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. 200 years later, the northern kingdom is wiped out by Assyria, and in 586 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed. And then, for the next three and a half generations, the surviving people of Judah, what happens to them? They're sent into exile. For at least 70 years, they live as exiles in Babylon. I wonder, can you imagine what life must have been like in exile? I can't, but here's the closest I can get to it, right? Growing up, I remember my grandmother telling me stories of her early life in Malaysia and living under Japanese occupation. Now, I know it's not quite the same, but she she continued to live in her home country. But it was similar to exile in that she lived under the rule of a foreign power. She, She would tell me that she saw her relatives being beaten by Japanese soldiers. And she herself was made to study the Japanese language. Can you see, even there, it was a life of persecution and a life of pressure. And so it would have been for God's people exiled in Babylon in the Old Testament, right? Just read the book of Esther. You'll find a life of persecution where the people of Judah were at constant risk of genocide under the Persian Empire. Or if you read the book of Daniel, you'll see a life of constant pressure where the young men of Judah were assimilated and re-educated into Babylonian culture. You see, the Old Testament, for the people in Babylon, a life in exile was a life of persecution and a life of pressure. And that's exactly how Peter describes our experience today, a life of persecution and pressure. I want you to notice just where he's writing from. Chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Now, let me be clear, right? Peter's not actually in Babylon. He's physically in Rome. But he's using this Old Testament symbol to describe our exile experience. You see, friends, we could be living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We could be living in the ancient Roman Empire. Or we could be living in modern-day Melbourne. But here's the reality. All of us are living in Babylon. All of us are living as exiles. And if that's the case, this is the ultimate expectation-setting book, isn't it? It tells us that we should be able to expect lies of, yes, you know it, persecution and pressure. And now I'm going to show you that's what we find right throughout this letter. We're going to move at lightning speed. In chapter 1, verse 6, we see that these Christians here, they're suffering various trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, we see they're being slandered as evildoers. In chapter 3, verse 9, they're being insulted. Chapter 3, verse 16, they're being accused and disparaged. Chapter 4, verse 14, they're being ridiculed for the name of Jesus. I want you to notice that none of this persecution is actually violent, right? No one's dying or shedding blood for their faith. No one's being martyred for following Jesus. No, no, these first century Christians are experiencing what we might call low-level, ongoing, social rejection. 
low-level, ongoing social rejection. And I wonder if you've noticed that that's not just the nature of their persecution. Doesn't that describe the nature of ours as well? A life of low-level, ongoing social rejection, a life of persecution and also a life of pressure. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that, there it is, wage war against your soul. Chapter 4, verse 3, for there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Implication, don't go back. Do you see what he's saying here? You see, when we live in exile, there's this constant pressure for us to conform to this world. To think like this world, to live like this world. It's just like I felt at that corporate castle, right? A constant risk of losing myself, of forgetting who I am. Living like the world and in that out-of-body experience going, why would you say that? Why would you laugh at that? Why would you value that? Who are you? Persecution and pressure. And I wonder if you've realized. It's all, the upshot of it is, right? It's just really the result of living in a spiritually diverse world. That's when we, get, when we get to chapters 2 and 3, that's what we'll see. Here are the questions that Peter raises in chapters 2 and 3, right? How should I work as a Christian slave under a non-Christian master? How should I live as a Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband? What should I do as a Christian friend socializing with non-Christian peers? They're the questions in chapters 2 and 3, but I wonder, maybe they're your questions as well. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family, and you wonder, how should I relate with my parents who think I'm crazy for following Jesus? Maybe they're the only Christian, maybe you're the only Christian at work, and you just don't know how to navigate those work relationships, especially when your colleagues start mocking Christianity. Or maybe you're the only Christian in your social circles and you just feel torn apart on the inside when your non-Christian mates to invite you to enjoy life but in a way that you know would not please the Lord. Gosh, you're not dying for your faith. But you're dying inside, aren't you? You feel like these first century Gentile Christians. Low-level, ongoing social rejection. Persecution and pressure. Who are you? Peter says, we are exiles. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you feel like one. In fact, can I suggest, there ought to be this tension between us and the world. I know there's a big push within Christian circles to say there's no Sunday or Monday divide. And that's true, right? We're the same person here that we are there. But surely there should be some sort of tension. Surely there should be some sort of friction point between us and the world. So if you're feeling that tension, if you're feeling a bit like an outcast, a stranger, an exile at work among your friends at home, it might not be so bad. I grew up singing this hymn, right? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. 
The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. You see, in this letter, Peter's adjusting our expectations of life in this world. Though I know some of you may be Christians, but you might sit there and go, oh gosh, Adam, if I'm honest, and I pro- you probably wouldn't tell me this, but in your heart, right? I don't actually feel like an exile in the world. I feel pretty at home in the world. I don't feel like a stranger. And if that's you, can I suggest, maybe you should, just a little at least. Because you see, we'll be a stranger to the world or a stranger to the Lord. We'll be an exile to this in this world or an exile in the next. We, we just can't have a foot in both kingdoms. We can't serve two masters. Here's the ultimate test. You can even run the test if you'd like. Would your non-Christian friends see you as being any different from them? Would your non-Christian friends see you as being any different from them? Do not yield to the persecution. Do not succumb to the pressure. Do not forget who you are. I wonder if you've seen that uh, classic work of literature and modern film, that classic animation, The Lion King. It's one of my favourite, grew up watching it, Mark hasn't seen it, you should repent and go watch it. It tells the story of a young cub prince, Simba, the son of Mufasa, the heir to Pride Rock. But early in the story, tragedy strikes, right? The evil uncle, we all have one, no we don't, Scar, kills Mufasa. And what does he tell Simba, right? Does anyone know? Run, run away and never return. He sends him into exile. And in exile, though for Simba it's quite a good exile experience, right? He lives deep in the jungles, far from home. He forsakes his true identity. He lives a different life with his new friends, Timon and Pumbaa. If you ever find anyone like that, run for your life, right? But one day, he bumps into and meets the old baboon, Rafiki. And he asks him, who are you? Rafiki replies, the question is, who are you? And Simba sighs. I thought I knew. Now I'm not so sure. You see, he was starting to lose his true self. He conformed to something else. Now, I wonder, if for those of you who have seen the movie, can you remember what happens next? Simba runs to the field. He sees a vision of his father. And from the clouds, Mufasa speaks those immortal words. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are my son. You see, friends, in our exile, it's so easy to lose ourselves, isn't it? To yield to the persecution, to succumb to the pressure, to forget who we are. But it's not just in these verses, gosh, in this whole book. Peter comes alongside us and speaks those same immortal words. Remember who you are. Sure? We are exiles, but it is not fundamentally who we are. It is not our deepest identity. No, I want you to see, even more than being exiles, no, we are chosen. We are chosen. Just look at verse 1 into verse 2. To those chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Who are we? Yes, we are exiles, 
But more than that, we are chosen. Now, I know what some of you, what some of you here are thinking, right? Adam, how in the world could a loving God choose a people for salvation? How is that fair? What about my free will? They're great questions. Come, from our, come for our sermon series in Romans 9 to 11 in 20 years, right? But I want you to notice that Peter is actually totally unconcerned with defending divine election. For those of you out there who love John Piper, right? He's not thinking. Peter's not thinking about Reformed or Armenian theology. He's not concerned with antimony, compatibilism, or divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how they go together. He he's not concerned with that. No, he doesn't defend election. Instead, he glories in it. You, you see, for Peter, divine election is the source of our joy. It is the ground of our assurance. It's the anchor of our identity. The divine election gives us safety and security, confidence and courage. Divine election means that no persecution or pressure can or will ever break us. Just imagine the hope it must have given these first century Christians to know that we might be exiled in this world, but we are elected by our God. We might be rejected by men, but we are chosen by God. Oh, despise not election, writes Thomas Goodwin. No, therein lies all your hope, that there is a remnant who shall infallibly be saved. It's beautiful. You see, Peter wants us to be so sure of who we are, not fundamentally as exiles in the world, but even more fundamentally as those chosen by God. And, and I want you to see what he does, right? He, he takes who we are, and it's as if he fuses it into the depths of who God is. In verse 2, the Trinity is like three gold locks. Father, Spirit, and Son, who work together to safeguard our identity. And I want us to look at them in turn. Here's the first gold lock. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, when Peter uses that word foreknowledge, let me tell you first what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that God looked through the tunnel of time, saw who would choose him, and then he chose him in return. No, no, no. Foreknowledge doesn't simply mean God's advanced awareness of something. It means his advanced intention. Just look at how Luke uses that very same word, the only other time this same word is used in the New Testament, in Acts 2.23. Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Yet can you see what foreknowledge means here? It means God's foreplanning. It means his forewilling. It means that before time began, God planned and chose you and me to be saved, to be his forever. But it's even more beautiful than that, right? In 1 Corinthians 8.3, the Apostle Paul writes, If anyone loves God, he is known by him. You see, throughout the Scriptures, to know someone means to love someone. And if that's the case, the foreknowledge of God the Father isn't just the forewilling of God. No, it's the foreloving of God. See, what does it mean that God chose us according to his foreknowledge? It means that from before time began, God has set his heart on us in love. 
You see, friends, our fundamental identity as those chosen by God is that we are eternally known and we are eternally loved. If you're living as an exile in this world, just imagine the assurance of knowing that. Gosh, you might be the only Christian in your family. And you might feel unaccepted, maybe even at times unloved by your siblings, your parents or your grandparents, all on account of the Lord Jesus. How easy it would be to despair. How easy it would be to give up. How easy it would be to just forget who you are. But I want you to see what Peter's saying. He's saying, no, no, no. Though you might be rejected and shunned by your earthly family, you are eternally chosen and loved by your heavenly Father. Stand firm. Stand firm. The second gold lock, we are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, when Peter uses that phrase, phrase, sanctifying work, he's talking about our holiness. Holiness doesn't simply mean living a morally pure life, though it includes that. No, it means something far more fundamental. To be holy means to be set apart for God. It means to be set apart from the world. It means to belong not to the world. It means to belong to God. Why have we been chosen? Because the Father loved us. How have we been chosen? Because the Spirit seals us. The Spirit is the one who sets us apart. He affects our election. He guarantees our salvation. He makes us belong to God, as it were. Just think about that, right? Not only have we been loved by the Father from the beginning. No, we will be kept by the Spirit to the end. To be chosen by God is to be set apart for God. To be set apart for God means to be set apart from this world. Just think about that. Because we belong to God, we don't belong to this world anymore. But so many of us long to belong, don't we? Isn't it deep in all of our hearts that we just want to be accepted by our friends? To belong to the group? So what do we do in order to get into the group? We live like they live. We value what they value. We love what they love. We behave like the world so that we can belong to the world. The fool's errand. Because if you're sanctified by the Spirit, you don't belong to the world. You belong to God. And if you belong to God, then you don't have to belong to the world, right? And if you don't have to belong to the world, then why in the world will we behave like the world? Can you see how this frees us? We don't have to play that game anymore. We don't have to fake that act. We don't have to live that lie all to be accepted by others. No, we can be confident about who we are. We can be confident about who we belong to. We can be confident in who we live for. To be blunt, it won't matter that you don't behave like your friends. It won't even matter that you don't belong to your friends. It won't even ultimately matter that we are exiled by our friends. Because we belong to God. And His Spirit will keep us to the end. You see, they might sell you out. But the Spirit has sealed us in. Stand firm. Stand firm. 
The third and final gold lock. We are chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. We are chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, the whole purpose of our election is so that we might obey the Son. It's so that we might live for Him. It's so that we might worship Him. You see, we bend the knee to no king but Jesus because He is the one who defines our life. He is the one who brings all of this together. Let me ask, how does God the Father express His love for us? By sending Jesus to die on a cross and forgive our sins. Or how does the God, the Spirit, actually sanctify us and make us holy? By Jesus dying on a cross and his blood cleansing our sin. Here's this wonderful reality, friends, right? To, to be a chosen people means to be loved by the Father. It means to be sanctified by the Spirit. And it means to be forgiven through the Son. Loved by the Father. Sanctified by the Spirit. Forgiven through the Son. You know, our lives, they're, they're all defined by key moments, aren't they? Those moments that make us who we are. I wonder what yours is. Could be your wedding day, the birth of your first child, or the day you made partner. Those moments, for some of you, make us who we are. But here's the one problem. All of them are fallible. All of them fade. None of them truly last. It's tragic, but our marriages can fall apart. Our children can reject us. Our jobs can be lost. You see, if our moments are defined by moments, if our lives are defined by moments like these, then I want to suggest our lives, our identity, is actually as fickle and flimsy as they are. It's not much to build a life on. But not so for us Christians. Now, our identity is grounded not in some fleeting moment, however special it might be. Our moment is grounded in something objective, something immovable, something eternal. It's grounded in Jesus' death for us. If you want to know the defining moment of your life, it is not when you got married. It is not when your first child was born. Gosh, it is definitely not when you're made partner. And I want to say this, it's not even when you put your trust in Jesus. Because if it's when you put your trust in Jesus, I can reinterpret that moment. What if I was at a Christian rally where there was a celebrity Christian preacher preaching? And I responded in that moment by putting my faith in him, only to realize 20 years later that that celebrity Christian preacher had fallen from grace. If I had defined my life by that moment, you can bet my faith will fall apart. No, the defining moment of every Christian's life is not when we trusted in Jesus. It's when Jesus died for us. And you can try and reinterpret that a thousand other ways, but it will not change the simple reality that on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Our marriages might fail, our children generally will disappoint, and our jobs will fade. But not this moment. No, the death of Jesus is the defining moment of our lives, and it anchors our identity forever. Our deepest identity is that we are a forgiven people. From eternity past, God chose us so that He might forgive us. 
You see, friends, if you're suffering on account of the Lord Jesus, if you're being persecuted or the pressure is on because of your faith, can I say, take heart. Stand firm. No fire, no famine, no flood can ever take away our forgiveness full and free. If you're not a Christian here, we're really glad that you're here. And I hope you can see how amazing it is to be chosen by God. Gosh, it's an eternity of being loved. An eternity of being protected. An eternity of being forgiven. I hope, if you're not a Christian, that you have Christian mates who come here. And when you look at them, you think to yourself, gosh, they're good. We get along. But there's just something weird about Christians. Something strange about them. They're different. I can only hope. I can only hope. Well, here's why. Because we have an identity that is so clear that we don't have to look inside. We don't have to travel the world. We don't have to go see anyone or anything to find ourselves. No, our true self is hidden in God. And nothing in this world can ever change that. It's absolutely amazing. Growing up, uh, there was a hymn that we sung in my church and I particularly loved it. And in a moment, we're going to sing it, but slightly updated. I want you to hear its words. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. Purchase of God. Born of his spirit. Washed in his blood. It's beautiful, right? There it is, right? There's our blessed assurance. There's our sure and steady anchor. Did you see the Trinity there at the end? We might live as exiles at work, exiles at home, exiles among our friends. But we are loved and purchased by God. We are sanctified and born of His Spirit. And we are forgiven, sprinkled, and washed in Jesus' blood. Who are we? Sisters and brothers, we're chosen by God. Let me pray. Blessed assurance, you, Lord Jesus, are ours. Oh, what a foretaste of that glory divine. We praise you for letting us share in the inheritance of our salvation knowing that though we might be exiled to our parents, our siblings, our workplaces, our friends, no, we have been purchased by you, or we've been born of your spirit, and we've been washed in the blood of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.